Hi, I'm Drew Beebe, the host of a new podcast from CNN called Great Big Story. It's a show about the curious side of the human experience. And I know that sounds like a lofty idea, but hear me out. Over the course of this show, we'll talk to some of the most interesting people you've ever met, from brilliant code breakers to a couple building their own artificial island. If you're itching for a good story and you're curious like I am, well, I think you might like this show. Give us a listen wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Good evening. Just moments before the third Democratic debate begins tonight, we're learning the strategies for some of the 10 candidates sharing the stage. This third debate actually a first in a number of ways. It's the first time all the qualifying candidates will be on one stage. It's the first time all three frontrunners will be on the debate stage. And the first time the leader, Joe Biden, will face the surging second place candidate, Elizabeth Warren. Attacks are expected, but from whom and against whom? And will they have a lasting or just fleeting effect? Now, in the last few hours, sources from inside a number of the campaigns have begun to talk about what we can expect tonight. So before we get to our political team for analysis, I want to check in with our chief political correspondent, Dana Bash, who is in Houston at the third debate. So, uh, Dana, let's talk strategy. What's the vice president thinking going into this or his team? Well, Anderson, I spoke to a senior Biden advisor who's involved in debate prep before coming on with you tonight, who said a couple of things. Uh, first, what we've been hearing from the Biden camp today, which is the notion that he's going to push, uh, that there is a difference between plans and getting things done. You can't have change if you can't actually implement it. Now, when you think plan, you think Elizabeth Warren. So when we've been hearing that, we've been thinking, aha, this is going to be the way he's going to differentiate himself from Elizabeth Warren the very first time they're on the stage together. This advisor insisted it's not just Elizabeth Warren. There are plenty of people on that stage who have plans uh, that he considers pie in the sky and not really realistic. Having said that, there was another interesting thing this advisor said to me, and that is about health care, noting that for all the plans that Elizabeth Warren has, she doesn't have a specific one on health care yet. She signed on to Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All. She says, I'm with Bernie, but not much more. And one last thing I will tell you is that Biden is planning, if attacked, uh, on being too incremental to talk about the fact that he has plans that, from his perspective, are big and bold. Anderson. Um, So the Biden campaign, they tweeted out a video today of the vice president talking about President Obama. Uh, What was the thinking behind that? Well, uh, every chance Joe Biden gets, he talks about President Obama because he understands how popular the former president uh, is still in the Democratic Party. And it was certainly noteworthy, given the last debate that, that CNN did, that we did, how many people on the stage with Joe Biden kind of went after President Obama and his record. And the fact that they abandoned that pretty soon afterwards, because that was kind of a a dead end uh, politically and strategically, since, again, President Obama is so popular. It seemed as though that was a bit of a reminder of what happened uh, in the last debate to the people who tried to uh, talk about Obama's record and Uh, try to hit hit Biden uh, by doing that. I wonder what what are you hearing about Senator Warren and the other candidate strategies? You know, Warren is such a different kind of candidate. You do hear from from 
most of these campaigns talking about what their candidate intends to do, how they intend to, um, you know, to separate themselves. Not Warren. Uh, I've talked to several of her her aides, particularly uh, tonight, and they just say that Elizabeth Warren is Elizabeth Warren. She talks about her plans. She talks about the fact that you can't be, uh, you know, you have to be courageous. You have to be big and bold. What's the point of doing this, as she said in our debate uh, last month, if you're not going to to try uh, to kind of hit it out of the park on all these ideas. That is the same kind of thing we're hearing now, but it will be interesting to see and hear if Joe Biden does go forward on the things that we're hearing, particularly on health care, how she's going to react if she's still going to kind of ignore uh, the people around her and just talk about what she's for or she's going to take the bait. She certainly has been debating most of her life since she was a teenager, so she's used to this. All right. Uh, uh, Dana, we'll check in with you a little bit later, later on. We'll check in with our uh, CNN senior political director, David Challing. He joins us. CNN senior political reporter, Nia Malika Henderson as well, USA Today columnist and CNN political analyst, Kirsten Powers. Also, CNN political commentator and former mayor of one of the greatest cities in the world, New Orleans. Mayor, well, okay, not great. I had to say, you know, I'm a New Yorker, but I do love New Orleans. Mayor Mitch Landrieu, uh, CNN uh, senior political commentator and former Michigan governor, General One of the Grand greatest Home. states in the world. I, knew, <laughs> I, I didn't even write it because I knew you would say it. Who also helped prep, uh, she actually helped prep Joe Biden for this debate and former special advisor of President Obama at CNN. Political commentator Van Jones. The greatest lots. president. In <laughs> how much, uh, David Challen, let's start with you. Uh, how much of the focus tonight do you expect to be on Joe Biden? Yeah, I mean, this is when you're the front runner, you've got the target on your back. So that that's just a reality in politics. And he has felt that the last couple of debates. Uh, and this time he'll get to feel it with all of the top tier folks uh, on stage with him. Um, how he handles it uh, informs us uh, about uh, the state of his mind and, and how he turns some of that energy coming his way and pushes it back out. As you were hearing, if indeed Joe Biden delivers on what his campaign has sort of been foreshadowing, this really drawing a contrast with Warren in some way. Uh, that's a different thing than we've seen in the past. But I will just note he's not the only one. Because Warren is ascendant, Anderson, this is going to be a new moment for her. How does she take the incoming that's going to be coming? We haven't seen her mm-hmm. tested in that way yet. Yeah. I mean, the every time I feel like we've had a, one of these nights and we've had someone on from the Biden campaign, I think we had one on the last time, they sort of laid out this whole strategy of yeah. what they were going to be talking about. None of that actually came <laughs> exactly. up. Exactly. And we'll see. And even in the first debate, it seemed like he was prepped a little bit too much. Uh, and it kind of came across on, on stage. Uh, in the second debate, you're right. He went in. I think the whole quote was, you know, I'm not going to be so polite this time. Uh, and, you know, he was in some ways polite and, and kind of gave up some of his time uh, when he was answering questions. But the Warren piece of it, you know, Dana basically saying, uh, Warren is going to be Warren. And to my eye, Warren is probably the best debater in this field. Uh, she's got a game plan going in always. Uh, she sticks to her plans. Uh, she's quicker on her feet. Uh, she's got snappy one-liners. So listen, Biden, if you want it with Warren, uh, you, you better be able to bring it. Uh, and you better be able to be uh, as, as quick on your feet and as snappy and as knowledgeable about your plans and her plans and be able to articulate them in a succinct way. It's also, I mean, I mean, 10 people say it's, it's a Michigan. I mean, no matter <laughs> what right. it, it's you know there's not a lot of time yeah. and and there's a bunch of folks on that stage who this may be the last time they're on that stage and they want to stay 
Yeah. So, I mean, definitely, if you're one of the people who aren't in the top tier, you're going to want to go after somebody in the top tier to try to to try to get into some sort of viral moment with them. But I do think what you just brought up is is what I'm thinking about is is this idea that Biden going after Warren and Jeff Zeleny reported earlier that he's been studying her plans. And I was thinking, I don't know if that's a good idea to go after Elizabeth Warren on her plans. So it would be interesting to see, especially because he does have kind of a history of messing up when it comes to facts, if he comes after her on a plan, misstates it, misrepresents it, or does something like that, um, I think that he could be putting himself in a kind of perilous position. Mayor Landrieu, what are you expecting? Well, I think David made a really good point. You know, up to this point, Biden has been the front runner and Elizabeth has been surging. Uh, all these other candidates are not just going to eat off of Biden's plate. They have to talk about Elizabeth Warren, too, and she's going to catch some incoming. And it's going to be very interesting to see how they go back and forth with each other and how the how the other folks that need some rise today. If Biden stays steady and he stays strong and Elizabeth is as good as she said, they, they both will have a good night. Well, also, does Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, do they sort of draft off each other well, on this one? Here's a good point. At some point, Tom, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth, who are, who are fighting for the same right. voters, have got to engage to start distinguishing themselves from each other. And you may see some of that tonight. Mm. Right. Uh, what do you make of this? I, I, again, so, you, you were involved in the I prep know. And, and, <laughs> uh, facts. She actually has facts. I, <laughs> well, let's, let me just say, um, you know, I can't technically endorse Joe Biden, but I do have a soft spot. And I did. I was in the debate prep. And um, By the way, if you're some, not endorsing him and you're in the debate <laughs> prep, he's in a lot of trouble. I'm just saying, I run an organization <laughs> that doesn't favor any particular Democrat. But I do, I mean, I, you know, I would be silly to say that I don't have... Uh, you know, that I'm not influenced by that. And I have a long relationship uh, with him from being governor. But I will say that, you know, I think people are making a little bit too much about him going after Elizabeth Warren. I mean, if you're in the front spot, mm-hmm. you know, you're not going to be punching people unless maybe you're punched. Then, of course, you want to punch back. But I'm super interested to see, given what we have learned after these first two debates, whether people are um, going to be forming a circular firing squad and shooting at Democrats. The Democrats out there, voters, hate it. They hate it. I know it's good TV, potentially, but they hate it. And the people who have done it have not been rewarded by it. So Let me ask you, and you can't say what you did during the debate. uh, I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. uh, Vice President Biden does something I haven't seen another candidate do in a debate, which is he stops himself (laughs) as soon as a moderator says... Time I, I or know. he sees the clock, he'll go anyway. Okay. That's it. And he <laughs> sort of, you know, ends honestly, it. and I it's think, very polite, but it's. I, I think that has something to do with the fact that all of his life people have told him, all right, you're too long winded. You know, you know, he's got Over, that. Overcompensating. He's, he's, he, he has done that. So, I mean, he knows that, that that's not a good strategy. And I, and hopefully that doesn't happen tonight. But I do think that because he is, you know, he's a, he's a guy who abides by the rules that he doesn't want to be seen as overwhelming. And I think that's probably and, some of the I, I want to talk about some of the other people. Uh, do it. Yang, Yang, Yang. I wonder who I want <laughs> Of course. Uh, Andrew Yang uh, is a phenomenon, uh, and he says he's going to do something tonight that no one has ever done what in do the history of it. I have no idea. <laughs> it may involve barnyard animals. I don't Crowd know surfing. what he's going to do, but he said he's going to do something. Uh, listen, I, I, I think he what, said he's now going to give his freedom dividend to 10 families this year <laughs> oh, across that, the country. That, 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 I think that's what it could. Yeah, well, whatever whatever it is, uh, this guy was was below asterisk and he's, he's coming on. But I think Kamala Harris has the most to gain and the most to lose. In the first debate, uh, she was strong. Some people thought she was strong. But she was also warm. She said, this little girl was me. And when you have strength and warmth, that is a very 
strong combination. The second debate, she was tried to be strong, but Biden punched her and Tulsi Gabbard beat her up and she didn't respond really well. So she looked weaker and she never humanized. So she looked colder. So she goes from strong and warm to colder and weaker. Which one shows up tonight is going to determine whether or not she's got a future, even as a VP pick. I am very curious to see what Kamala Harris does tonight. I think this is a really important point about who's going to bring the warmth. Mm -hmm. Because everybody's got plans, right? But who's going to make a moment connecting in some way with another person on the stage or with people out there? And at the end of the day, we have to remember that our mission is to beat Trump. Yes. It's really simple. Not to beat each other. And and that's what... Uh, that's the number one thing that, that people Everything are looking for. And that's what that. all these candidates know in their heart. That I that's think most of the voters out there who don't like President Trump are looking for the person who can beat Trump. Right. Mm-hmm. And that, I think that if they stay focused on that, again. You know, but, we'll see it. Let me just say quickly, David Axelrod had a really interesting column today where he talked about um, exurban and rural women getting just exhausted yeah. oh. with Donald Trump. Right. And feeling like there's so much divisiveness, so much bitterness. I'm kind of curious tonight to see whether somebody I mean, I think Joe Biden will have a bit of this, but whether somebody says, OK, the contrast that we should bring is we want to we want to put forward a candidate who will allow people to sleep at night. Maybe it's not the most exciting. Maybe it's not the most pugilistic, but somebody who will bring us some normalcy. The one person who I think has still underperformed but could pull that off still is Cory Booker. I Mm -hmm. still think he's got room to grow. Uh, I had him on my show over the weekend. He showed a a lighter side of himself. He's kind of finding his his, his, uh, rhythm. Uh, if, If Biden does wane or fade... I think a Cory Booker could get some real space. We'll see tonight. How important is it for, I mean, you, you know, you talk about Joe Biden, if he is going to be going after plans of Elizabeth Warren uh, and gets some figures wrong, yeah. how, you I mean, that is, those are the kind of things that at once it, once it starts and that people start to point it out, then it becomes something that people start yeah. to watch. It's something we talk yeah. about, yeah. but it's not something yet that voters have indicated that they find super important. Right. That, I mean, we just, we haven't seen that yet. There's been this disconnect of like, if he has a moment like that, we in the press will obsess about it. It'll play over. It'll be a thing. Um, but in the polling and in talking to voters, even out there on the trail, it's not something they're grabbing onto just yet as very yeah, important. But I think the thing that like people, a- I think, like about Biden uh, is that is his decency yes. uh, and his ability to connect uh, his yeah. story, tragic in, in some ways, losing uh, family members. Uh, and so we'll see if that comes out tonight. But but yeah, I mean, we talk about Biden kind of being a, a weak front runner, but there is this kind of rock solid emotional attachment that a lot of Democratic voters have for him. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we're going to see everybody after the debate. I'm very excited that the mayor of the greatest city in America. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what can I say? The rest of us are uh, top uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm happy you're all here, but uh, uh, it's time we've got Mitch here. Uh, who's the candidate most capable of taking on President Trump? To the mayor's point, Governor Granholm just uh, mentioned David Axelrod's new column. I'll talk to President Obama's chief strategist for both his campaigns, David Axelrod, who says that that person isn't even on the debate stage tonight. It's kind of a tease. We'll explain why. Also, impeachment hearings. The House Judiciary Committee took a big step today in its investigation of the president. I'll talk with the vice chair on the committee about what comes next. The candidates vying for the Democratic nomination tonight are all trying to prove that they are the one who can best take on President Trump. But how to do that? That's the question that's tripped up many candidates ever since then private citizen Donald Trump entered the race. The man who was the chief strategist for both of President Obama's winning election bids has an answer. David Axelrod, who's also a CNN senior political commentator, writes this in The New York Times, quote, the person most capable of defeating Donald Trump is Donald Trump. If Democrats are smart, they'll let him do the job. 
David Axelrod joins us now. It's so interesting because so many of Trump's supporters early on, Corey Lewandowski famously wrote on the board, you know, let Trump be Trump. Yes. You say that Trump is actually. Trump. If you're a Democrat, you want that because now I think what you see astride the country is a real sense of exhaustion. I think this the, 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 the constant anxiety of waking up to a president's tweets and tantrums and often gratuitous battles and the chaos around him is just exhausting. And that's not just for people who oppose the president. But, you know, I, I've seen it. I've seen polling. I've, I've, I've seen some focus groups of uh, Trump voters who, uh, particularly women, mm-hmm. uh, who are now saying, you know, I, I, kind of, I like what he does, but I can't, I can't stand the way he does it. And I don't know if we can take this. And I really think that the operative question that Americans need to be asked that has the broadest uh, reach is, uh, can we do this for another four years? The, the you were, I've heard you say that the group, if you were in the Trump train, if you were in the Trump war room, the group you would be looking at and most concerned about is uh, uh, white, non-college educated women. women. Yes. Why, why that group? Well, first of all, he does have a problem in the suburbs. We saw it again in North Carolina. Uh, and uh, that that is problem number one. He carried the suburbs by four points. But he carried white, non-college educated women by 27 points in 2016. In a recent Fox News poll, he was leading Joe Biden by four points among these women. And I think it has a lot to do with this exhaustion factor, mm-hmm. the, the, the just the constant grinding uh, of this president and the way he does uh, does his business and the chaos that ensues is really disturbing to these voters. And it's not going to change, Anderson. That's the thing. What we've seen is as he feels pressed, he becomes more frenetic. And his theory of politics is that there are no undecided voters, that it's all about mobilization. If you just turn things up to the, the maximum into the red and excite your base, uh, then you can win. And I think as he turns the dial into the red, he's going to He's going to lose a small but decisive group of voters. You know, Rick Wilson has this book. Uh, he's a, a, yeah. a Republican uh, strategist. Who, uh, he's against Trump. Here's a book, uh, Everything Trump Touches Dies. It does seem like the uh, that, that, you know, is, is should, the, should the strategy for Democrats be to go toe to toe with that or to ignore then all the things which you're saying long-term is, is turning people off. Well, look, I, I said in this uh, piece that the, the key to beating Trump is not wrestling, but jujitsu. Jujitsu is the art of using the force of your opponent against them rather than matching it with your own force. And uh, I think that the more frenetic and the more outrageous he becomes, uh, and he, he does that on a consistent basis, the more he, he's building evidence for this case that it is just too tumultuous, too chaotic uh, for this country to do another four years of it. And I think, you know, that's not to say that there aren't, you know, moral policy, uh, you, you know, gr- grounds to uh, competence grounds on which to uh, attack him. But I think uh, uh, the less personal, uh, less chasing the rabbit down the hole each time he tweets, each time he does something outrageous. It is though, you know, that sense of exhaustion, I certainly understand. And look, you know, we all work in this where we're focused on this 24 hours a day. Most people, though, aren't focused on this, certainly even at this stage of the race, even to the point of 
you know, a lot of them don't know who these Democratic candidates are at this stage. This is true on the, uh, in terms of the Democratic primary. But look, Trump, uh, at his own insistence, is a pervasive presence in our lives. Every president is. But he is so dominant hmm. uh, in, in, in that people are aware of how he functions and all of the little twists and turns. Uh, I think that he is his own worst enemy at hmm. the end, in the end of the day. Oh, fascinating. David Axrod, thank you very much. Appreciate it. For more, I want to bring in CNN Global Affairs Analyst and Washington Post columnist Matt Max Boot, author of The Corrosion of Conservatism, Why I Left the Right, and former RNC chief of staff and CNN political commentator Mike Shields. Uh, Max, as someone who's not a big fan of the president, do you think this strategy could work? Do you think uh, the president is his own worst enemy? Yes, absolutely. I agree with that. And in general, I would not dispute David Axelrod's political judgments. He knows a thing or two about politics. And in this case, I, I think he is dead right. Uh, I mean, just look at the big picture here, which is that you know, the economy is going gangbusters, and yet Donald Trump is the first president who never cracks 50% approval. I mean, that is an astonishing statistic. He has never gotten over 50%, even though the economy is in great shape. And why is that? It's because everything that he says or does repulses a significant portion of the electorate. I mean, he's got about 40% of the base, which is behind him, but the other 60% of the country basically is turned off by what he is saying. And there was actually a fascinating Pew survey in April and May, uh, which asked people how they reacted to what Donald Trump says. And, you know, if you look at the numbers, 76% are concerned, 70 confused, 69% embarrassed, 67% exhausted, 65% angry. That's how normal people react to a president who talks in ways that are just frankly alarming and crazy. Yeah. And so there's no, no question to my mind that no Democratic candidate should try to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Donald Trump and, and sling insults and, okay. uh, so, and, and, and act in the way that he acts. I mean, let him, let him destroy himself right. with the way he talks. M Mike, I mean, is this kind of music to your ears? Because, I mean, you can make the counter-argument, which is letting Trump be Trump is what allowed Donald Trump to win. I mean, he is unlike any other candidate and does stuff that no one else does, and people responded. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I understand what David Axelrod is saying. He's sort of acknowledging that the Democrats have become obsessed with attacking President Trump. And, and, and I think in large part because they don't just disagree with him, they hate him. They hate who he is. They hate him as a person. It's very personal. And so they have issues that, that I'm sure David and others would want them to run on. We may hear about some of them in the debate stage tonight, like health care and things that they want to talk about, and they're never going to get there. I mean, he, this column came out today, ironically, on the same day that we watched on the, in the House, Nancy Pelosi simultaneously saying, we're not going to do an impeachment and Gerald Nadler filing and uh, creating an impeachment investigation that was not authorized by the House, which it should be. And Nancy Pelosi being just saying, I'm not going to talk about this anymore. They have a wing of their party that can't stand the president. They're sort of foaming at the mouth. And that the image of the Democratic Party going into the election is not one of here are the things we stand for. It is we are the anti-Trump party. So, so you have okay, a so, roaring but, economy, as Max said, and an anti-Trump party but because Mike, they can't help themselves. But, Mike, do you do you uh, do you do you see any. Uh, sliding of the president's popularity among groups that were wildly popular for him before based on sort of this idea of just kind of sick of the chaos. I think people get sick of politics in general. And, I, and, and look, people are sick of the chaos in Washington. Uh, they don't like it. And, and the Democrats now own a lot of that chaos in Washington. But the thing you have to remember about approval ratings is we don't have a referendum. We have a binary choice election. And the president won his election in 2016 without being over 50 percent approval rating nationally. There are people that are just as 
David describes, some voters that say, I don't maybe like some of the things he does, but I actually like his policies and I like what he's doing for the country. When they match that up with Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders in many of these states, he's going to come out on top of that because they're going to say, look, I may not like the way he, the tone that he just used, but compared to what Bernie wants to do with health care, I'm going to vote for President Trump again, and then it won't matter. Max, isn't it a danger for Democrats to think, well, you know, the president is going to implode on his own uh, let's just do what we want to do and not be thinking about electing somebody who can appeal to people who might otherwise, you know, if, if things are too liberal, too progressive, might end up holding their nose and voting for the president. Oh, yeah. No, I think that's absolutely true, Anderson. I mean, I think what, what David Axelrod is trying to say is that Democrats should not try to go to toe-to-toe with, with Trump and the insults. But, you know, my look, my analysis of, of the of the election is basically people are sick and tired of Trump. They're sick of this reality show. They want to turn it off, but they want to make sure that they're going to turn over the government to a safe pair of hands. And so I think essentially the Democrats have to negate the Trump attacks because, you know, he's going to be in frenetic mode claiming the Democrats are open borders, socialists. They're going to destroy our economy. They're going to make us into Venezuela. And, you know, if, if they're running against somebody like Joe Biden. That is just so absurd and so ridiculous. I don't think it can resonate. Mm-hmm. There is a danger if they're running against the, a, a, a Sanders or a Warren that they could make it stick. And so I think it's very important uh, if, if Sanders or Warren actually wins the uh, the nomination, they have to pivot to the center to negate these, these Trump attacks. Mm-hmm. Because I think the one skill that Trump does have is he is very good at hitting the weak points of his adversaries. And so Democrats have to be wary of that. Uh, Max Boot, thank you, Mike Shields. Appreciate it. In a letter to the Senate, some of America's top CEOs say the government should take concrete action on gun violence now. Just ahead, I'll talk with the CEO of Levi Strauss about why he signed the letter. We'll be right back. Sina's Manu Raju reports tonight that a source familiar with his thinking says President Trump is open to supporting, quote, significant new legislation to control gun violence. Now, what exactly that means is unclear. The president held a White House meeting on the topic today, but he emerged saying only some progress had been made on some issues, but didn't go any to de- detail. All of this is 145 CEOs and other business leaders signed a letter demanding the government take concrete action to control gun violence. In a draft letter to the Senate, they said, in part, and I quote, doing nothing about America's gun violence crisis is simply unacceptable, unquote. Now, the CEO of the company who led the effort on this letter, Chip Berg, head of Levi Strauss, he joins me now from San Francisco. Uh, Chip, can you just explain your decision to lead the effort on getting this letter and getting this letter by, signed by so many people? Why, why would a company like Levi Strauss get involved in this? Sure. Well, um, first of all, first and foremost, we have a gun violence epidemic in this country, and I think it's indisputable. Uh, There were 68 lives lost in mass shootings just in August alone. Um, We actually waded into this gun violence epidemic issue about two years ago when we respectfully requested customers to not enter our stores bearing a weapon. Um, We actually had a weapon go off in one of our stores about two years ago. Fortunately, it didn't injure any of our employees or any customers other than the person who was carrying the gun. But that kind of got us into this issue. And then after the Parkland shooting about a year ago, we stepped up our efforts to really begin working with uh, organizations that were committed to uh, putting legislation in, in place that would begin making gun ownership for some people that shouldn't own guns a little bit more difficult. So this has been a natural evolution of our efforts 
Um, and honestly, after the, the August shootings, where it seemed like every day on a weekend you were waking up to the news of another mass massacre, um, I just kind of hit the point where I said enough is enough and um, felt that that Congress had to act here. And, uh, and so we started reaching out to other CEOs and started to form a coalition demanding that the Senate take action on federal background checks. Uh, a similar law has already passed the Congress or has passed the House of Representatives and also on red flag laws. And uh, I think the tide is turning. Um, there's clearly momentum right now to demand Congress take action here. So is this, I mean, is this a business, I mean, uh, some, some, is it a business decision or is it a decision uh, from the perspective of someone who believes, you know, you, your company are part of American society and this is a problem and therefore you're, you're speaking out on it? It is, I, I think gun violence today affects all of us. 58% of Americans have been affected by gun violence, either directly or indirectly, uh, over the last couple of years. And this is an issue that affects everybody. If you operate a retail store, or if you operate a movie theater, or if you operate a restaurant, places that have historically been safe for us as a society are no longer safe. I'm a parent, and anybody who is a parent has to deal with their child coming home from school the day or the afternoon of a lockdown drill and has to deal with the conversation at the dinner table about the possibility of a shooter coming into their school. And, and they know, older children know that this is a reality, that this has happened. And so when they practice these drills, it has an impact on them. Mm. Gun violence is one of the biggest issues affecting the young generation today, and they are taking it with them. And in fact, we were inspired to act because of the movement of the youth in this country demanding action. Mm. And a big part of what we've done, we created a fund of a million dollars that we are investing in organizations that are committed to changing the laws in this country to make this country a safer place. Mm. Chip Burke from uh, Levi Strauss. Thank you very much, Chip. I appreciate it. Thanks for being with us. The House Judiciary Committee has approved a legislative roadmap for an impeachment investigation. A lot of questions remain. Coming up, I'll speak with the committee's vice chair. Well, the House Judiciary Committee inched along toward a full impeachment inquiry today by approving a resolution that defined the rules of an impeachment investigation. Now, kind of sounds like a distinction without a difference. Committee Chairman uh, Jerry Nadler said that uh, splitting verbal hairs of the word inquiry or investigation didn't really mean much of anything. The leading Republican on the committee said today uh, that today's vote was essentially meaningless because it granted the chairman powers that he already has access to. The committee vice chair is Pennsylvania Congresswoman Mary Gay uh, uh, Scanlon. I spoke to her shortly before airtime. Vice Chairwoman Scanlon, all of this mixed messaging, whether is it an impeachment inquiry, is it not an impeachment inquiry? I know Chairman Nadler says that it doesn't matter what it's called. But if the Democrats on the committee can't get it straight, how should the American people? Well, I don't think the Democrats on the committee have any question about what's going on. We've been undertaking an impeachment investigation for some time. Uh, there are serious, credible allegations of constitutional misconduct against the president, and it's our job to investigate and, and see where the evidence takes us. Your Republican colleague, Doug Collins, said today 
The Judiciary Committee has become a giant Instagram filter to make it appear that something's happening that's not. Is that true at all? Is there a lack of, of clarity? I, I think he appears a little confused, but I really liked his other analogy better. He said we were off on a trip down the yellow brick road, and I might be inclined to agree because at the end of the yellow brick road, the curtain gets pulled back and we see that the great and terrible Oz is really a fraud. <laughs> Uh, perhaps I don't think he knows his movie history perhaps very well uh, on that <laughs> reference. But Kellyanne Conway today said that there's no public appetite for impeachment. And if you look at the polls, she's right. I mean, the majority of Americans say they're not in favor of it. So why go ahead with this if that's not the case? If this is not how voters want taxpayer dollars to be spent? And, you know, if there are some Republican uh, Democrats who are concerned, it takes away focus uh, f- uh, for the upcoming elections. Look, you shouldn't impeach someone for political reasons. You also can't not impeach someone for political reasons. As I said, there are serious allegations of misconduct. It's Congress's job to look at those allegations and see if they're proven or disproven. So what what are the next steps? I mean, how do you see this playing out? Sure. Well, so as I said before, that we've been engaged in an investigation. It's been a little bit thwarted by the lack of cooperation from the White House. But um, we've expanded the investigation. We're no longer just looking at the Mueller report. We're also looking at allegations concerning the payment of hush money to impact the election. We're looking at the dangling of pardons to obstruct investigations and and affect other people's conduct. We're looking at whether or not emoluments um, have affected the president's judgment, whether payments from foreign or domestic sources um, are affecting his judgment and whether he's lining his pockets at the public expense. Corey Lewandowski is coming in next week? Yes, Corey Lewandowski will be in, I think, on the 17th. What is your focus there? What is your interest in talking to him? Um, well, he is, um, he's never been a, an employee of the White House. He was uh, the campaign manager before Manafort, but despite the fact that he wasn't a public employee, the Mueller report tells us that Mr. Lewandowski was ordered to um, get rid of the special counsel and try to talk uh, Jeff Sessions out of being recused. The, the, with 14 months into the election, I mean, I guess, you know, there are Democrats who are concerned, is this the message that you want to be sending to Democratic voters about where the party's priorities are. I mean, there's some Democrats who worry that you're essentially falling into Republican hands here and taking your eye off, you know, tabletop issues that voters really care about. Uh, as I said before, I don't see that we have a choice to, but to investigate allegations of this seriousness. Um, but that doesn't mean we're not doing the other things that the voters care about. I mean, just today, uh, Representatives Hayes and uh, Senator Warren and myself introduced a bill that would um, expand access to Pell Grants for students who've been defrauded by for-profit universities. So we are going to continue working, you know, we may be working around the clock, but we'll do what has to get done. Mm. Vice Chairwoman uh, Mary Gates Gandlin, appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Up next, a tropical storm warning is in effect for the Bahamas tonight, the last place uh, that needs to see a storm coming. It's still reeling, of course, from Hurricane Dorian. That is, officials have revised the number of people uh, listed as missing after the storm. We'll have details ahead. The Bahamas is on the alert again tonight. A tropical storm warning is in effect for the areas hard hit by Hurricane Dorian. The National Hurricane Center is tracking what could become tropical cyclone nine. 
Meanwhile, the number of people listed as missing in the Bahamas after Dorian has, stopped, has dropped significantly to 1,300. That's down from an estimated 2,500. That list could likely get even smaller as the government urges people to check in with family and authorities. Dorian tore through the islands nearly two weeks ago as a Category 5 hurricane, making it the strongest storm ever to make landfall in the Bahamas. I want to check in with Chris, see what he's working on for Cuomo Primetime at the top of the hour. Chris? Hey, how you doing, Coop? We're going to do a special report tonight on the Bahamas. We're going to take you onto the ground. We're going to take you to people who are trying to help in different ways, give you different looks at the situation, especially with the idea of getting hit by another storm coming. We're also going to have the administration's top immigration official and test two propositions. Why did the president say what he said about basically bad hombres coming from the Bahamas? Has the door been shut? What are the rules? Are they changing? And we're going to talk about this new asylum law uh, situation that just came through the Supreme Court. Why is that the best policy for America? Special Mm -hmm. report tonight. All right. For the whole hour, Bahamas. Chris, appreciate it. Thank you very much. Important stuff. We're going to uh, go to Chris in about eight minutes from now. Up next, right now, two grown adults elected to Congress trade insults on Twitter over who supports the president more. That's where we are, folks. Congresswoman Liz Cheney versus Senator Rand Paul when we continue. been a lot of uh, talk about how silent many Republican lawmakers have been regarding President Trump, no matter what he does or says or tweets, no matter how embarrassing or beneath the dignity of the office. They are marching in lockstep. If you thought the sucking up couldn't get any worse or weirder, well, now two well-known Republican lawmakers are exchanging insults on Twitter, and each is claiming the other doesn't love the leader enough. They have fundamentally different views on international use of force, these two, and Afghanistan, but they aren't actually really arguing policy. They're arguing essentially about who loves Daddy Trump more. It's Senator Rand Paul, son of former Congressman Ron Paul, versus Congresswoman Liz Cheney, daughter of the former vice president. Apparently still craving, fighting for, and fearful of losing Daddy's love. Here's Randy Kay. The war of words between Republicans Liz Cheney and Rand Paul started Wednesday when the senator tweeted an op-ed from the Washington Examiner that called on Cheney, a top House Republican, to stop criticizing Trump, who has said he'd like to get out of Afghanistan. Paul tweeted, I agree. Why do some neocons continue to advocate for endless wars? I stand with real Donald Trump on ending wars. Let's focus on America first, not Afghanistan. Congresswoman Cheney pushed back, tweeting, She stands with Trump and our men and women in uniform who will never surrender to terrorists, unlike Rand Paul, who seems to have forgotten that today is 9-11. Things continued to go downhill this morning, with Paul tweeting, Hi, Liz Cheney. President Real Donald Trump hears all your never-Trump warmongering. We all see your pro-Bolton blather. I'm just grateful for a president who, unlike you, supports stopping these endless wars. Then, on CNN, Paul blasted both Cheney and her father, the former vice president. They hate President Trump's foreign policy. They want to stay in Afghanistan forever. They're apologizing for John Bolton. They love John Bolton. So really, they are part of this foreign policy swamp that's been trying to undermine President Trump. And so people of Wyoming and people across the United States need to know that the Cheneys are never Trumpers. Things turned even uglier when Cheney breathed new life into a 2015 tweet from Trump himself, calling Paul, who was then his Republican presidential rival, a spoiled brat without a properly functioning brain. Cheney piled on, tweeting, no truer words were ever spoken. 
adding, Hi, Rand Paul. I know the 2016 race was painful for you since you were such a big loser, then and now, with a dismal 4.5% in Iowa. No surprise since your motto seems to be, Terrorist first, America second. Paul swiped back, tweeting, Hey, Liz Cheney. I feel like you might just be mad still about when candidate Trump shredded your dad's failed foreign policy and endless wars. Just a few minutes later, Cheney again. Weird. I don't see you on stage here, Rand Paul. Oh, right. My bad. You had already lost. She added the hashtag Weird Rand. Paul kept needling her, tweeting, While they might exist, I sure haven't heard of a war that Liz Cheney didn't want us to get involved in using his new favorite hashtag, Warmonger Cheney's. Cheney never backed down, tweeting late Thursday, Take a breath, Rand Paul. I vote with real Donald Trump 97% of the time. You have a D. Maybe sit this one out and spend some time thinking about all your anti-Trump votes. Through it all, the president stayed silent on Twitter, not offering a single tweet in response to the fighting within his own party. Randy Kay, CNN, New York. We'll see if the president weighs in on who's his favorite. Be sure to join me at right around 10.15 p.m. tonight for our uh, analysis of the Democratic debate. The news continues right now. I want to hand over to Chris Cuomo for primetime. Chris?